0: middle of that year, I would meet and start dating somebody who was pretty cool. Uh, It worked out pretty well. We'll be celebrating our 10-year first date on Cinco de Mayo. Uh, It's the only way we can remember what day that was. Uh, 2014, at the end of the year, I also moved to Portland, uh, which was a kind of big move for me. It was the first time I had moved to another city for a reason other than school. I went there for work. And I was excited to be in a new city to enjoy all the things that Portland has to offer. Portland is known for things like good coffee, food trucks, and craft beer, and I was here for all of it. Um, And in order to get ready for the move, uh, I binge-watched the TV show Portlandia, which is way too accurate, by the way, as somebody who lived in Portland for four years. In fact, uh, as I was researching moving to Portland, uh, there was something else I learned that Portlandia does a really good job explaining about the city of Portland. And so we're going to have them explain it for us in a moment.
1: Mr. Mayor, is everything OK?
0: You said it was urgent.
1: It's very urgent.
0: Uh, sorry, my my crystal reading skills are just a little rusty.
1: Oh, what? You mean my earwax sculptors? No. That's not it. It's this. Did you see this? It's common knowledge. Portland is very white. Yes, but least diverse? Least? I don't want to be the least at anything.
0: You know, I actually think that's a great idea. I think it's a good time to do some soul searching, to ask ourselves those tough questions.
1: Well, the only tough questions I want to ask is why that journalist is printing these lies. I have many people of color working here at City Hall. Many people of color. That's great. Yes. Sam, get in here. Yes, sir. Sam, are you white? I am. Damn it. But you're gay, right? Yes. A rainbow isn't white. Um, okay. Jesse, okay. Phil, Susan, Chuck. Okay. Darn it. It's still white. This <sighs> is not right. Darn it. Wait, wait. Who are you? Um, I'm Mike. Mike! What is your position here at City Hall? Oh, I'm I'm just visiting. I could never live in this city. This city is too Don't say it. White. Wet. Wet? White? What? Wait. Wait. No. I'm sorry, Mike. Thank you. We'll work on making this city less wet.
0: So here's the thing about Portland. Uh, As the show says, Portland is very white. It's actually among uh, cities that are over half a million people. It is one of the least diverse cities in the country. Uh, And me being me, I had to know why and understand why, and so I did some digging. Um, Turns out that in the middle of the 19th century, there were folks that thought it would be impossible for white people and black people to live together post-slavery in harmony. And so there were a whole bunch of people who advocated not even trying it. Uh, Instead, they advocated these plans where the races would be separated. Unless you think that this was some kind of fringe idea, Abraham Lincoln, the guy whose entire legacy involved fighting and eventually ending slavery, actually thought it was the best option. He advocated taking every person of color in this country, uh, every person of African descent and moving them to somewhere else, maybe in the Caribbean or maybe just sending them back to Africa. And so Oregon took a very similar but almost opposite approach. Uh, rather than kick out all of the black folks, they instead advocating create, advocated creating a place where only white people would live. And so, at the time that the state was being created, they abolished slavery, and at the exact same time, they made it illegal for a black person to be in, own property, or even sign contracts in the state. This was in the Oregon Constitution. And this law uh, was eventually overturned by the 14th Amendment, um, which guaranteed equal protection under the law, but there were still clauses in people's house deeds dating to the 1920s that made it illegal for property to be sold to somebody who was black. So this was a bad idea. Uh, And it's resulted, it's one of the things, this legacy is even 170 years later, it's one of the reasons Portland continues to be one of the whitest cities in the country. And today we would say this policy was racist because it was racist, Uh, unequivocally. These were bad ideas. But sometimes I think when we look back at moments like this, when we look back at figures, be it Abraham Lincoln or the founders of Oregon, rather than think about how short-sighted they were back then and how superior we are today because we would never pass a law like this, I wonder if instead we should give them at least a little bit a benefit of the doubt. It is not at all that we would condone the idea that the best way to solve racism was to deport a whole bunch of people. But... I do wonder if these people were trying their hardest to be good, if they meant well. You know, now today, Portland and the entire state of Oregon really does need to do more to foster reconciliation. They need to own up to their history, as this video makes clear, because they should know better now. And when we lived in Portland, there were people doing this work, trying to get the city to look back at the past and say, hey, we need to not do that again. We need to change this situation for folks. But one of the reasons why I think we should condone the actions of those people, but maybe be careful about how we attack the individuals themselves, is because there's a chance that we hold views that are also not good, that in some time, maybe decades from now, folks are going to look back at us and say things like, I can't believe they thought that. This is the thing, the closer that we get to thinking we have it figured out, the more we are willing to go to bat for those ideas, the more likely, because we are sinful, we are to double down on ideas that might not be right. Because we, like all people, try to love. We try to do God's will. And sometimes we get it wrong. As the saying goes, the road to hell is paved in good intentions. So today we're going to jump back on the kingdom train. Jesus is continuing his ministry and we're going to hear again about a dispute with some religious leaders And it's going to beg the question we ought to always ask ourselves. Who is in charge, us or Jesus? Are we sticking to the past or to what God is doing in front of us? So with that, let's listen to our scripture from Mark chapter 2. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in the front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith... He said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And Jesus went out again beside the sea, and the whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collection station, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. May God bless this reading. Well, we often see in the Gospels these stories where Jesus gets into arguments with scribes or Pharisees or priests or any other number of religious leaders. And there is a challenge in these passages for us as Christians that that needs to be named. Because sometimes we read these stories as a sign that the Jews did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, We do this thing where we say that the Jews of Jesus' time were stubborn and that Jews today should just admit that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And the problem with that idea is that it's anti-Semitic, that it's anti-Jewish. And it is very, very dangerous, especially in a time like we live in now where anti-Semitism is on the rise. It's important for us to say that while we proclaim Jesus as Messiah, that that doesn't make folks who don't wrong. We should be careful anyways about how much stock we put into our feeling of being right. Because in the end, it's not really about being right, but rather about God being loving. And I actually think there's something in this passage for us to learn along these lines. You see, there are religious leaders in just about every community. There are folks who try to help the community remember the good works of God. And for Jews, the good works include things like the covenant made with Abraham. The good works include things like the exodus from Egypt, like God's presence with the people during the exile and the eventual return. For the Jewish people, God has shown up. And it is the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, who are called to remind the people of God's faithfulness. And there are all of these ways in which they do this. Rituals, sacrifices, prayers, the law. Ways in which they try to help the people remember who God is and what God has done. But the thing is, God is never quite done acting. God did not act a long time ago and then stop. Showing up. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is God come to be with us. So these religious leaders who are confronting Jesus, these scribes, are staking their ground on what God has done in the past. And in sticking so firmly to what they have known to be right, they are missing what's right in front of them. That God might be doing a new thing. And so all of these boundaries, these laws, serve a purpose. But they do run the risk of getting in the way of what God might be doing now. And so this is my thing with these passages. For me personally, and I hope for you all as well, I don't think that criticism of religious folks in Jesus' time is fair unless we admit that we are in the same place that we live in the same tension they are in. That tension between the tradition and the things that we're trying to keep alive and the word of God, which is alive in the world around us. Because the religious leaders in Jesus' time, those who are criticizing him for forgiving sins, those who criticize him for healing on the Sabbath, those folks aren't really unlike us. Because we, like them, always run the risk of getting the religious stuff of our lives, the worship, the prayer, even the identity of being Christian, mixed up with what God is doing in the world. The point of religious practice, the point of just about everything we do as a church, is to keep alive the memory of what God has done. And it's to remind us that God has been faithful. It is to offer praise to the one whose love fuels all that we are. But we always have to be careful that keeping the memory alive always runs the risk of getting in the way of what God is doing now. And so rather than look back at the scribes and say, well, how silly that they would do that, can we instead take a lesson from them and assume that somewhere in our lives we're doing the exact same thing? That somewhere where we think we are doing the most faithful thing we can possibly do, in reality, we're not recognizing the presence of God right in front of us. Because this is the tension we live in. We have to admit that it exists in our lives that there's this desire to remain faithful to a God who has done so much to celebrate and worship and sing praises to God. And some of that for us means living in a particular way. And that can mean a, that can be a good thing. That is a good thing. But the closer you stick to that, the more you run the risk of not seeing what God is doing in the present. So last week, if you stayed with us for our after church lunch, we shared this report that we received. Um, We have been working with the architects from the Arcor architectural firm. Uh, We got this grant money through the Indiana Sacred Places program and we were able to hire them and they gave us some information about things that need to be worked on in the church. Um, Our elevator needs to be updated, let's say, pretty extensively. Things like that. But one of the things that we asked them to do was to take a look at this space, at the sanctuary space. Because we know a couple of things to be true about the sanctuary right now. First, our pews are not spaced as wide as is recommended in today's world. I'm guessing that most of the people here know that intuitively. (laughs) They're just a little bit narrow. And when they were put in, they were recommended to be a certain space, and now it is recommended that they be spaced wider. And so we had the architects look at the room and space the pews out. But the second problem that we know is true about this space is that if you want to come here and join us for worship and you are in a wheelchair, there are only two rows in this entire space that are accessible and they are in the very, very back of the sanctuary. If we were to put this space in today, ADA code would not allow us to do that. It is expected that wheelchair accessible seating will be available throughout the space. And so we asked them, uh, can you re-space the pews and can you find a way to you know, make our space more welcoming to folks who come in and happen to be in wheelchairs? And so they did. What they came up with was in the middle of the sanctuary, they will remove two rows of pews, and there will be a large gap where if you were in a wheelchair, you can sit in the middle of the sanctuary. That will serve as an aisle, but also as a row. And I'm so glad we had the architects do this, because I couldn't in a million years have come up with that plan. But they did a beautiful job. You can see the drawings on the screen. It looks really nice. Of course, all of this is not gonna happen tomorrow. We don't have the money quite yet, although we are working on grant money to help make it possible. Uh, All of this requires that we move pews. And you know what moving pews means, right? Everybody is okay with moving pews, as long as it is not their pew. And so uh, we had this original meeting with the architects where they came in and they showed us the plans for the moving of the pews. And Rob Galbraith, who is our current board chair uh, and is himself an architect, uh, looked at the plans and he started counting. And he got to a first, the first few pews in and said, well, that, that's where Louise sits. And then he counted a few more pews behind that because him and Carol always sit behind Louise. Hey, he blurted out, that's our pew. Our plans remove the Galbraith pews. Now he was joking. I know he was joking because I asked to make sure. You're not really upset we're getting rid of your pew, right? Rob has been very, very supportive of this work and helping the architects, uh, working with the architects to help figure out how to reuse our space. But this does kind of illustrate this point. There is always the way it has been, the tradition, the stuff we want to pass on to folks. And then there is the work of God right in front of us. And I know Rob would agree, trying to be a church that welcomes folks, whether they're in a wheelchair or not, is absolutely the work of God right in front of us. As I said, we're not rearranging the pews next week. It costs money, and while we're working to make it happen, it's still a ways off. But I think this is an example of trying to navigate this space between staying faithful to what was while staying open to what will come. And this is the thing. We are going to get this wrong sometimes. Every church... Every person, every individual, every community makes decisions that they think are the best possible decisions. And they realize years down the road, or their ancestors realized that, hey, that was a dumb idea. Why'd you do that? This is the thing I don't think the folks who wrote the Oregon Constitution honestly thought that they were doing something to hurt the situation. We know now they were. I don't think they thought, hey, let's do this thing because we hate people of color. But they were doing something that hurt them. And I don't think that the folks who sat down on some building committee at FCC Lafayette 70 years ago were thinking, hey, let's make it difficult for folks with wheelchairs to sit in the sanctuary. I don't think that was their thinking. But we know now that we could be more welcoming. And I don't think the scribes in Jesus' time were thinking, how can we prevent God from doing good work in this young man's life? The scribes in that story are just trying their best, just like we're trying our best. So I wonder in 50 years or 100 years or 2,000 years, who will look back on us and think, can you believe they did that? Can you believe they thought that? We all live between these two worlds between the traditions we inherit and try to pass on and the work of God that is actively going on in our world now. And the best we can do is remain open to what God is doing. So, how are we staying open to what God is doing? How are we being aware of it? because the story of the gospels is of a God who is living, acting on behalf of the folks in the world. And it's up to us to allow the presence to affect and change who we are, to allow what God is doing to be what guides us. Let us pray. Oh, holy and gracious God, we give you thanks for this morning and pray that you might continue to open our hearts, that you might in all things... Bring to us a sense of your good work in this world around us. We pray today, O oh holy God, that you might empower us and embolden us and give us the courage to be your people in this time and place. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Well, like the wise men that we talked about last week, we're on a journey